This is Dwight Powell of the Dallas Mavericks, and you're listening to Numbers on the Boards with Bobby Carla and Jeff Skin Wade. Carla? Dwight, dude, he has one job, man. It's Carella. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is time. It is time. I'm Bobby Carella. Joining me, as always, the great Jeff Skin Wade. Hola. And Skin, it is time to talk hoops. This is Numbers on the Boards. It's your weekly Mavs podcast for all things Mavs. And we have a very, very special guest that is going to be joining us here pretty soon. I think that you've heard of him, Skin, and I think most Mavs fans have heard of him. He is Donnie Nelson, president of basketball operations, general manager for the Mavs, the guy that does he, he pulls all the strings. Yeah, man. And, you know, he's a guy that when acquiring players, he'll talk about acquiring the big fish. I feel like we got the big fish today. We scored Donnie for the podcast. We scored Donnie. And you know what? He paid us uh, a very high compliment. So we'll see about that. Uh, maybe look for our names as the trade deadline approaches. Maybe the Mavs will be dangling our names out on the open market. Uh, so, of course, with Donnie, we're going to talk about um, – Dennis Smith, the draft process, and then also the upcoming trade deadline. We are recording this on Thursday, January 18th, mm. which is three weeks to the day until February 8th. So, Skin, and mm-hmm. that is that is the big, that is the trade deadline, which yes. is NBA's trade deadline, probably the best in sports, right? Absolutely. You know, the, the NBA has not only the best trade deadline, they also have the best free agency period. They do. I mean, it's amazing how the front office machinations is like Mark Stein once described it as its its own separate league to follow. You have the on-court stuff, and then you have the free agency and draft stuff, and people are just as interested in that as they are what's happening on the floor. And I think it's one of the reasons why there's so much good fan engagement with the NBA. They're the best at social media. They also have far and away the best offseason and draft process. So it's a, it's a big thing for people like you and I that just eat, sleep, and, and drink this league. And the NBA has the best podcasts. Without it, just want to just want to put that out there. Yeah, just want to put that. A slap my own back. Uh, okay, skin. Yep. Uh, we will talk about the front office later, but like you said, it's its own separate league. There is an on court product here, mm-hmm. and um, lately for the Mavs, it's been more of the same. Man, clutch games, close yes. games, some wins, some losses. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's it's crazy how it seems like every game is like the same. It's either it's going to be one team takes a big lead, the other team comes back, and then it comes down to the last like thirty seconds. Just, right. I mean, it's been it's been crazy. It's been crazy, and I and I can't help. Maybe I'm just being uh, overly optimistic, or or you know, Mav lover, Homer guy, but I can't help. I mean, all these, you know, I I I get hurt by the losses. It's just the way I'm wired. It brings me down for a little bit, but I can't help but look ahead while these losses are happening because it is Dennis that's involved in these plays and Harrison that's involved in these plays. And I see those guys as Mavericks for a long time to come, big time starters for a really good team in the future. So I do, you know, glean a little optimism out of that. We had a stat on the broadcast where the biggest fourth quarter scoring periods by individual players for the Mavs have all been Dennis and Harrison. Really? And uh, yes, several double-digit fourth quarters for both of those guys. And wow. that was before the Denver game the other night where Dennis went nuts Dude, again. Very good. Yeah, so, uh, you know, while the losses kind of get me down, uh, just because, you know, it's, we're fans and, and we live and breathe it, uh, I take good things out of it as well. And I also think that we have a spectacular front office. So whatever position we finally end up in after 82 games, I feel confident we're going to end up drafting a guy that's going to get us closer to where we want to be. Yeah. So that, that game in Denver was wild. First off, that was a hell. That was a very weird game. Yes. Very strange finish with calls, no calls, blah, blah, blah. Okay. We could talk about that, but that's a, its own different thing. But coming back to Dennis, 
that guy was unbelievable in that game. Um, and it's not just like he ended up with a lot of points, which is cool, but it's how he got them. So he made nine shots at the rim in that game. Mm. Nine shots at the rim. That's I mean, outrageous. That's unbelievable. And a lot of those came in transition. Mm-hmm. So the Mavs for the last, I don't know, even with Monte, they were toward the bottom. I mean, they've been toward the bottom in fast break points, it seems like, for Carlisle's entire tenure here. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just – they're not an offensive transition team because they value the half-court position so so highly. And they've been very good in half-court offense for forever. I mean, and for conversely, ages. the Mavs are turnover-averse exactly, compared yeah. to other teams. And whenever you start playing that, that ping-pong game where you're just mm-hmm. up and down, it's back and forth, things get messy and sloppy real quick. It's right. very easy to give the ball away. Um but Dennis kind of has that green light. Rick has kind of given him the green light to, if we get a stop, if we get a turnover, like take the take it the other way and score because yeah. no one can stop you. And Denver he, was a great example. Yeah, of that. Denver was a great example. He probably had, I, I mean, I didn't count, but he probably had 10, 12 fast break points just by himself. Mm-hmm. And whenever you can do that, especially in the fourth quarter when you're trying to make up a deficit, like he scored six or eight points. In transition in that quarter, they're down 15. All of a sudden, you look up, well, they're down one. Right. And, they, and because of the type of buckets they are, they're momentum buckets. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get into some sort of intangible thing, how that builds confidence and belief and puts you in a position where we were getting blown out and suddenly we have a chance to win. That's the way those kinds of buckets fuel your team. You know, it's got a dual effect. It's points on the board as well as momentum building type buckets. And anyone who's as dynamic as he is, that creates – a, a separate element that you can you can vibe off of if you're another player. Mm. Yeah, and w- one other play he made in that game that that kind of stood out to me. I mean, it's tough to look too far into just one play in a basketball game because there's like thousands of events, as as Rick Carlisle will call them. But he was isolated. Um, he was bringing the ball up the floor. They were down ten at the time with probably I don't know three minutes left. Mm-hmm. He's bringing the ball up the right side of the floor, one on one against Gary Harris, who really did a good job against Dennis, I mean, all night. He made it tough. He's longer, bigger than Dennis, uh, almost just as quick. He's a really nice player, Gary yeah. Harris, by the way. Having a great year. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, but those kind of guys are the guys that have given Dennis problems this season because they're they're almost just as quick and they're longer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they can, they can eat up space. Um, and generally the Mavs will give him a ball screen to try and help him out. Well, teams have kind of figured that out, so they're starting to put smaller guys on the screener so that they can just switch easily and make it tough for Dennis. The Lakers did that really well, just kind of build a wall to keep him out of the paint. But in this play, when he brought the ball up the floor, he just he kind of was like, okay, you're not going to stop me. Like, I'm unleashing. I'm going to play free. I'm just going to cross over. He got past Harris on one step and and threw it down. Mm-hmm. Jokic made a, a nice business decision to, yeah. uh, to not challenge that dunk. But That was the cock the hammer play. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's an explosive dunk out of nowhere. Right. But one thing he said to us earlier this season, uh, I forget who it was against. It might have been that Bulls game where they kind of just like made an insane comeback and, and came up a little short. But he just said, like, once we were down like 10 or 12, I just started playing free. Mm-hmm. So I, if that's what that looks like, if he can channel that feeling and just play that way all the time, then Mike, who can stay in front of him? Because longer guys can't, slower guys obviously can't. I mean, that is like, that's unstoppable. That is unstoppable. And it's, like you said, it's valuable experience and confidence building and I mean, he doesn't lack for confidence. You can just tell the day he walked in the door, he felt like he belonged. And I think that's you really see that when he plays bigger names, he rises to the occasion, even if it's like a manufactured deal like the Lonzo thing, for example. Like, 
you know, that was the second player taken in the draft, and I sure Dennis felt like he should have been the first or second player taken in the draft. So those things motivate him, and he plays well in those kinds of games. But just the way the league is now, and, you know, the idea of – especially the Mavericks will always have shooters, right? And so if that floor is wide open like that, I mean, people ain't going to be staying in front of him. He's either – and he he makes the right kind of passes too. He does a good job, you know, on time, on target passes where the guy gets it right in the shot pocket, turns and fires. He's good at that as well. He's, uh, he's an incredibly deadly weapon, and it's – Mavericks got the right guy. They got lucky on this one. They got the right guy. Yeah, and fourth quarters, man, Barnes and Smith, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that two-man game. Absolutely. That's two guys that can get a bucket on their own. They can – hook up and pick and roll, they can – I mean, they can kind of do anything. How great was it that Barnes got so many isolations at the end of the Laker game and really just used his – he's been working on his handle, used his handle and his shot to to get some really big buckets down the stretch in regulation, whether it was Randall or Kuzma, whoever he was matched up against, he delivered. Yeah, that tying shot he made with – I forget how much – like three seconds left or something. Mm-hmm. Very similar to um, Golden State game against McCaw, but this time instead of spinning – uh, he just kind of kept going left. Like, he's really good going left. Absolutely which is, is. is, is and finishing be, with his left. Yeah, and finishing with his left hand for sure. That's got to be kind of, um, I don't know, catch defenders off guard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you play right-handed players to go to their right. Right. That's kind of that's what you do. And sometimes Barnes will go left and spin to finish with his right hand. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if you can show, and that's kind of his big development this year. His numbers are kind of the same. Uh, his three-point shooting is up a little bit. His free throws are up a little bit. But – like his counting stats points are kind of the same, but how he's getting them is different. You know, he's showing that he's more than just one, two pull up mid range shot. I mean, he's he growing get all baby. the way to the basket. Yeah. He's growing. Finish with your right, finish with your left, spin, uh, go through, draw contact. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of, he's making some strides. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, man, why don't we talk to the man who's responsible for acquiring those two players that are such a big part of the Mavs future? That's a good idea. He probably knows more about them than we do, I think. I think you're right. Yeah. Let's hear from him. He's, uh, he's Donnie Nelson coming up right now. Joining us now on Numbers on the Boards, the man behind the curtain, the guy who makes all the moves, who does all the the shaking, the shuffling, the moving around, making this team uh, into a contender hopefully very soon. He is Mavs president of basketball operations, Donnie Nelson. Donnie, thanks for joining us. Bobby and Skin, good to be here. The dynamic duo is now a trio. <laughs> here we go. Man, here we go. We're here to dominate. Okay, so Donnie, this has been a pretty exciting season to watch Dennis kind of come along. Uh, he's gone from Guy who fell into your lap at number nine, you were very excited to have him. Now he's kind of, I mean, I think he's on the radar now. Uh, He's kind of established himself, and he seems to be improving and figuring things out. Um, We had a little stretch at the beginning of January where Lowry Markinen, Frank Nilakina, and a couple other rookies who were in this class all came in through Dallas. And at the time, Rick was talking about them and just heaping praise on them. But, I mean... Now it's kind of your chance to heap praise on Dennis. I mean, we hear Rick talk about Dennis all the time, but just what are your thoughts on how far he's come along and kind of just this whole rookie class as a whole? It seems like no matter who you took, you were going to hit, but Dennis seems to be kind of a home run so far. Yeah, Bobby. So all those guys that you named were definitely in our wheelhouse, you know, in that area. And honestly, um, when Dennis, you know, got to us, we were just really happy. We had a you know, really good history here with point guards. We've been, in a lot of ways, we've been spoiled rotten when you got, you know, Steve Nash and, you know, Jason Kidd. And, you know, it's just uh, the, the point guards that have come through Dallas have been pretty staggering. And didn't we just hang another one in the rafters the other night? You yes. Know, He's pretty good himself. Huh? The great one, number three, you know. Um, 
so yeah, harp and uh, so it's just been an incredible um, you know uh, point guard hif- history we had in Dallas and with Dennis we saw um, again not to put him in you know th- those quote unquote you know banner hanging Hall of Fame conversations yet he's got a long way to go but here's a guy that you know we felt like you could you know start the uh, franchise youth movement. Uh, with and around so really really um, excited we also know that like any good young player um, there's a rookie curve it's learning a new system it's him um, you know getting out there uh, you know certainly some trepidation with you know some of the injury you know things he was working through as a senior and getting confident um, you know with that um, fear-free which um, uh, hasn't been a big factor, you know. We're with Casey. We we're, we're always managing those situations. But I think if you look at the the upside um, with his you know athleticism, ability to shoot the three, he's he likes the big play at the end of games. There's certainly some really cool stuff there that you can um, get excited about. You know, I like that you brought up the history of Mav point guards. It reminded me a few weeks back, in, in, it was a moment where Dennis had one of his spectacular dunks. And your buddy, Stevie Nash, took to Twitter and said it would take me four cumulative jumps to reach what (laughs) Dennis just did. And it's a reminder that all these great point guards, he's different than all of them because of the athletic gift. But one of the things I've heard you describe before, and it always stayed with me in talking about point guards, is how they're hardwired, almost like their, their computer to play that very difficult position. When you guys evaluated Dennis, does he seem to have those natural point guard skills because he's also like the attacker guy right does he fit into that mold of the classic point guard to you well ironically you know you mentioned Steve uh, there's some similarities and I was with Steve his first three years in Phoenix and he really was um, a scorer you know he Mm -hmm. was really a guy that came off the bench and let it fly and you know that's back when we had um uh, Kevin Johnson and then Jason Kidd joined the trio. That's really what freed up the the trade for us to get him because he was a third backup point guard. But I think the uh, mentality of being a threat to score, whether it's from deep or whether it's in the paint, is the thing that really opens things up for a point guard. So um, if you're just all about passing and people know that when you get into the paint, um, you're looking to pass first, second, and third, um, sometimes that can be a little bit of a detriment. So mm-hmm. the fact, like, you know, which you said with Nash, is that these guys are looking to get into the paint, collapse the defense. You've seen it with J.J. I mean, the, J.J.'s ability to be a threat to score is the thing that really opens up those passing lanes. Well, Steve, it didn't, you know, it took him a couple years. J.J. the same. Um, so Dennis is, you know, going through that same type of uh, learning curve, and as he collapsed defenses and the, you know, especially his ability to finish over the rim hmm. with authority, um, he's going to be a massive uh, threat in there, and that's really going to open up things for him. Seems like point guards nowadays almost have to look to score first and then pass second. Otherwise, like you said, the defense can just kind of not worry about them, but. Whenever you first started, you know, you were coaching for a while and then became uh, part of the front office with the Mavs. Back in those days, you know, late 90s, early 1000s, point guard's job was still to pass. So how different has it become to evaluate these guys just in the last 15, 20 years 
kind of looking for different qualities that maybe before might have been like a, a black mark on his on his resume. You know, here's the thing: there is such a value put on the three ball, and I think you know that's just a function of. Um, the way the game is right now and kind of what Golden State has has done. And I think um, most point guards, when they come in, Harp was, um, you know, you don't all of a sudden just show up and become a three-point threat because, um, you know, the collegiate game is different. Your athleticism, you can dominate. You can kind of get where you need to go. Um, but, and Jason Kidd, another, you know, former Mav, here's a guy that, Really, it, it really hurt him in his first uh, couple of years. Even though he came to Dallas, he, you know, rookie of the year, it took him a while to really build that, you know, three-point um, uh, shooting ability. And that was a big part of why we won the championship with him as our starting point guard. So there's a learning curve, whether you're a young player, um, all young players go through that learning curve, but I think there's an extra... Um, uh, added incentive for us as GMs to get shooters. And, and that's something that he doesn't have to, uh, that's something he, he had coming in and something that, you know, he's, um, he has now, which is a, it's a, a big thing because what, what you don't want again is uh, if you have a, a non shooter um, with, I think, you know, um, you, we could really quantify Jason as in his first year or two when he mm-hmm. was learning, you know, that, that art, um, then people can back off and just, in fact, when Nash was here, you know, there was about a six month period where his jump shot took a vacation to mm-hmm. the point was he, he was getting booed, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, the fact that, you know, you take away that really important thing, it's hard to get around people. Um, if you can't shoot. So it's almost a must skill in the current game, the way that it's played right now. I'm just sitting here having so many memories as you're talking. You know, when we did the Harp retirement, you know, there's a bunch of old clips that come up, and there was not one single Derek Harper clip that I saw where he was involved in a pick and roll. And the game has changed so much. And I wonder how you feel about this because, you know, I feel like you and your dad saw where it was going. You know, your dad was involved in the rules changes to bring the zone in, and people complained, but that was about opening the game up. And now, ironically, Golden State is leading the charge. Do you feel any sort of, I don't know if the word is vindication or any sort of pride in where the game is today, seeing how you and your dad sort of see the game? Well, it's funny because in the early days of the Mavericks, you know, Dick Mata was a big UCLA guy, so there wasn't a lot of pick and roll. The point guard was passing to a wing, and he was going posting up or – you know, you remember Brad Davis, where another great, you know, Maverick great point guard, where he'd get, always get that back door. You know, he would get the guy leaning. It was one time a game. He always got that back door. It would drive my dad nuts. In fact, <laughs> my my dad would find Tim Hardaway. He said, anybody that goes for this back door is going to get fined. And literally, he got it every game. Mm-hmm. And Nelly, you know. Back then would come, you know, Hardaway and, and kind of ear to ear say, hey, I'll take that hundred bucks now, you know. <laughs> um, but, but no, I think with, with, with Harp, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. But then, you know, you, you get a new coach and he was one of the great pick and roll point guards because mm-hmm. he could hit you. He could hurt you with the long ball and get in the paint. And he was so big and dominant. Um, but no, and, and, you know, back in the day with Nelly and that was you know, back when we had the run TMC and Hardaway and those guys, you know, you know Nelly, he was, uh, he liked shooters across the court. He always said you can never have enough shooters. 
shoot, we even made, you know, seven foot nine minute bowl, a three point shooter for a period of time. <laughs> but no, shooting is a skill that, uh, especially now, um, the way that the game is played, you know, we always get the, you know, Nelly was in um, Golden State, actually drafted Curry mm-hmm. um, back then. And mm-hmm. a big part of it was his incredible three point shooting, which, again, just like with Nash, opened up the whole draw and drive and kick game and whatnot. But he always felt like the the ultimate team was, you know, a bunch of five guys that were six, seven that could do everything. Mm-hmm. You could post up, you could. So if the point guard matches up on this six, seven guy, just put him in the post, you know. And if you know, and if you got a center matched up, you can just draw and kick and drive around. Um, but no, those are those. It's it's nice. Nelly, who literally is on uh, Maui right now, kind of smiling that the game is actually kind of caught up to his <laughs> philosophy in some respects, is really kind of uh, uh, cool. And the fact that Golden State is playing at the high level, and he was, you know, we were, you know, both part of that building process with Mullen and Hardaway and all, and Timmy and all those, um, Mitch and all those guys back in the early days, is um, it's uh, cool to see. So, one thing that has always kind of fascinated me is, as just a, a basketball junkie is seeing these guys before they become NBA players. And kind of the, the key part of that process is leading up to the draft, doing these individual workouts for teams or like pro days at schools or like the, you know, these summer tournaments where everyone is scouting these guys. And we heard Rick whenever Markinen was in town and Kennard too, uh, say that those two guys had like the best shooting workouts he's ever seen of any player leading up to the draft. And we've heard all about workouts by Donovan Mitchell and by other guys, but the one guy that we haven't really heard any juicy details about is the guy that's on the Mavs, Dennis Smith. And him with a 48-inch vertical and with all the athleticism in the world, I have to imagine his workout for you guys must have been pretty cool. I mean, what what can you take us behind the curtain and, and tell us maybe what you saw? Well, him? I mean, really the curtain – is 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 a nice curtain it's uh but if you're making your decision you know based on a one hour workout you're going to make a lot of mistakes i mean literally our guys are out there in the field seeing every one of these uh college games i've been out there quite a bit this year Mm -hmm. you know um, kind of given where we are right now and so um shoot i've been over the pond twice and i'm going to go again soon to see you know some of the prospects over there so you're making your decision based on the iceberg of information that is under. Now, when you bring someone in, look, I've heard, um, you know, great players, Hall of Fame players going in and having a terrible workout and a coach coming in and said, oh, I can't play, hmm. you know, uh, you, you look pretty stupid if, you know, if you're you're going off of one look. In fact, the... You know, it's a it's an old scouting adage is, um, you know, never make a decision based on, you know, uh, one look can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's, you look at Dirk, you know, you know, Dirk down in, um, uh, you know, when he had the, the big game down in uh, San Antonio, you know, people didn't have a chance to see him play, you know, uh, very much. And so that was the one reason why he slid the way he did is because the old one look can be dangerous. Um, but no, I think there's a lot of truth to that because guys can get hot for a day. Hmm. And really when we bring someone in, it's a chance to get to know them. It's a chance to sit down across, you know, from them. If they have a a terrific workout or a terrible workout, you know, that's, you know, it's a factor, 
but it's not the reason that you make your decision. And the one thing I can tell you about Dennis is uh, the integrity, um, his, uh, his his dad and his um, grandmother and the, the family around him, you know, were, were big chemistry guys. And the integrity of that young man and his family and the way he was raised and what he fought through to put himself in this position is um, it's very Nash, Dirk, Harp, uh, J-Kid-like. These are guys that have the right stuff. I'm really fascinated by this because you're talking about the importance of shooting. And then you'll see these like uh, draft things online. They'll go, well, that guy can't shoot. But, you know, obviously you can be coached to do certain things. So when you're scouting players and they're shooting what do, you, what do you look for to see if you guys can work with that guy as a quote-unquote shooter or develop him as a shooter? Yeah, you, you know, there's um, – first of all, you get there early to every game because sometimes you'll go scout a power forward or a center and the coach will say, you ain't touching the ball unless you get on the block. Hmm. And so you get there early and you see guys – first of all, you see their work, their work ethic. You know, are they jacking around? Are they – uh, preparing, you know, for shots they're going to take in a game. Sometimes you see things that, you know, you're just, you know, you're not going to see during the course of a, a normal game because of coaching philosophy or whatnot. Uh, first thing that I personally look for is action. Do they have the right, um, you know, there, there's always tweaks that you can make, but, you know, how, if a guy's not a good shooter, what's the reasons why? Is his form broke? How broke is it? Is it fixable? There's the mental side of it. Some guys just have some, maybe some mental blocks on, maybe he's a great three-point shooter and he's a terrible free-throw shooter. Mm -hmm. And and then you kind of dig into, you know, how you can repair those things. When you're drafting, you're projecting. You know, you're projecting what a player can be. Um, You know, sometimes there's guys that play power forward in college, but they're really a small forward. You know, you got certain guys like Scottie Pippen that grew crazy amount between his junior and senior year. He was a point guard, and now he's a one, two, three, and four in the pros. You mm-hmm. know, so there's all of those things that take place. But in it, shooting in specific, I'm looking at action. I'm getting a feel for you know uh, if there are any mental blocks and issues. You certainly are looking at. You know, uh, during the course of the game, is he a big shot maker? Some guys get a little cold, little, you know, um, they, they don't react as well in the fourth quarter and, and whatnot. You're looking at that. And I think personally that if you look at a free throw, a free throw is a percentage you make from the line is a pretty good barometer because if you are a, a good free throw shooter um, and you have good action, generally speaking, you can build – you have the building blocks to extend your range. Um, and I think that's true with most guys. So those are kind of some of the triggers I look for. Mm-hmm. So it's easy then, huh? <laughs> yeah. Anybody can do it. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like the most complicated thing in the world. Uh, okay, so one other thing. Uh, the trade deadline. I see we, we, we're we in this office right now at the MAPS facility. There's a big, giant nuclear clock, uh, a countdown clock on the wall. That takes us up to February 8th, which is now, what, how many days away? I'm sure you know. Is there, a, like, a ball that can come down, <laughs> yeah. like a Times Square? <laughs> right. It's February 8th. <laughs> um, I mean, that is a big day in the NBA, the trade deadline. Three um, weeks from today, right? Three weeks from today. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Um, so, normally, 
you know, the trade deadline is covered as there are buyers and then there are sellers. And then you hear Mark and some of the people at the Mavs talk and they say, well, we're going to be opportunistic. And now to dummies like Skin and me, that's like, well, that's not a buyer. That's not being a seller either. So what what does that mean? I mean, what exactly does opportunistic mean? And I mean, you don't have to like say specific names or anything, but just generally that doesn't fall where on that spectrum does it fall or it kind of is it is its own thing well we've been offered a second round pick for bobby and skin oh you gotta jump on that i'm holding out for a lottery pick all right okay we did it um do you hear that charlotte (laughs) (laughs) um no look as long as it's been 18 years now that i've worked for mark and he has always been aggressive and turning over every rock and opportunistic and um, options open so we can stay flexible. Um, and so we have a really um, good mix uh, right now. We, we, we love, even though we haven't had a very good uh, record year, it's, um, our record is not uh, what we want it to be. We've got some really good supporting players that are helping our young players grow. You know, you got a guy like Devin Harris and J.J. Barea, um, these are guys that are uh, critical, you know, really in, in helping uh, Dennis kind of learn the ropes and whatnot. So we value that very, very much. Um, now, that being said, we, we understand that where we are in the standings, um, we are always looking for, you know, ways to improve the team. Um, you know, we're, we're talking to everybody like we always do. Um, whether that uh, turns into something or not, you know, it, it remains to be seen. But just know that we probably overvalue the um, uh, the experience and the integrity of our veterans. Um, and uh, we've got great, like, great relationships with them, their representation. And when you make trades, one of the hardest parts is you're literally – um, they're family members, you know, it's, it's, um, and so we don't take that lightly. Um, that being said, we also understand that this is a time with the franchise that, um, you know, we need to, you know, uh, add more youth and athleticism and upside and Dirk's not going to play forever. You know, it's, it's, and so we need to, um, really take another step like we did this past year and getting uh, some running mates for uh, Dennis and Dodo and uh, Dwight and uh, Harrison and, you know, um, some of the other young uh, building blocks that um, Yogi and, you know, the young guys and the old guys are, right? So uh, you can do the math. All right. I know you have to go and I know you got a lot going on, but I got to ask you this because, you know, people, I think fans are so interested in, well, how did this trade come together? And who, So how did the trade happen? And they have in their mind how trade happens. And I know that you were talking to other GMs and agents all the time, and sometimes there's a long play involved. But do you have a, a story where in the past a trade came together for you incredibly quickly? Like the boom, suddenly you guys made a trade. Is there any, word, any story that sticks out where one happened incredibly fast? Um, honestly, uh, those deals are usually done draft day mm-hmm. and, and, um, where something might come out of left field. And besides that, our business is so relational. I mean, it is, and trust is incredibly important with, um, not just other general managers around the league, but agents. And, um, so usually 
that's few and far between. Mm-hmm. Usually we have some idea um, going in, but, um, uh, well, you know, one that came together very fairly quickly, although it was the biggest, you know, uh, trade at the time was when, you know, Nelly first came into town and, you know, basically threw a hand grenade into the team. <laughs> um, that, um, um, yeah, and, but that's kind of few and far between. Usually yeah. there's, uh, there's, there's quite a bit of groundwork and relationship building and information gathering that takes place. It's fascinating stuff. Okay, before we get out of here, one more thing. I know you're a big music guy. Give give me and skin a recommendation. Ooh, I like this. What do you what do you listen to? Maybe like oh, one or man. two artists and an album that came out. I mean, what is you got to check thing? out my boys uh, Wade Bowen and Randy Rogers. Man, they are the, the creme de la creme. Um, uh, if you're into country like I am, uh, Texas Red Dirt, and then also keep your eye on young Tyler Bryant that um, is uh, of the rock genre. Uh, from Honey Grove, Texas, right up the way, and okay. actually, when ACDC came through, he opened up for him. So he's him, a guitar wizard. He no, he does it all. He's uh, he's uh, lead singer, guitarist, <clears throat> and so yeah. Keep your eye on him. His little star is really starting to explode. Awesome, I love it. Hey, Donnie, thank you so much for the time. Man. Yeah, thank you, Donnie. Okay, Bob, again, thank you. There he goes, the man, the myth, the legend. I really, I really value how long Donnie's been here and how long I've been able to know him. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a really awesome guy. He's and and you know he's a really great guy away from the organization. He's just a good person, mm-hmm. really good person. But I'm always interested in the stories about trades and the stories about draft picks and the scouting that goes into it. But I, I have this uh, this Donnie story for you. Okay. Um. So this was, if you remember the the Rondo deal. So you know how Donnie was just talking about it's a relational business. The uh, I'll give you an example: the Nerlens Noel trade. Uh, who's running the Sixers? The Colangelos. Who did Donnie work with in Phoenix? The Colangelos. When he was working with the Colangelos, who else was there? Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge is with the Celtics. You know, a lot of times, what about Kevin Garnett getting traded to Boston? Who was running things in Minnesota? It was Kevin McHale. Okay. All, so these, that's what he's talking about and real there. quick, too, after that Nerlens trade, in the, in the press conference where they said, like, yes, this happened, Donnie said, like, yeah, we have a great relationship with the Colangelos. Absolutely. I mean, like, he said that so yeah that yes is, that is very very true so these things these things tend to matter well uh so if you remember when the rondo deal went down on a saturday it was a saturday game we played the golden state warriors and the game was over about three minutes into the game that was the shoe game right that was the shoe game the shoe swat yeah tyson game. chandler swat get that shoe yeah. out of here um so the next day i was at an event it was like uh this is december not a lot of trades go down in december the next day I was at this Christmas event, right? And I'm actually sitting five feet away from Donnie. And it's about a two-hour deal. And Donnie did not look up from his phone once. And I know that routine. And, man, my, my brain is spinning. For most people, it just shows disinterest and maybe some millennial tendencies. Not but for, for a him. basketball general manager, he's, that tells you something else. He's working. Yeah. Uh, and then the next day was a Monday – and there were rumors that the Mavericks were hot and heavy on Rondo. And then about four hours later, the deal went down. And so I just had in my mind as this was going down, I was like, man, who's he talking to right now? What's up? You know, it's just like my radar is just going ding, 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 ding. And I'm trying to pay attention to this presentation. But all I can think about is, man, Donnie's working it right now. And I just have in my mind this whole thing where he's 
texting his buddy Danny, and then he's texting Mark, and then he's texting back to Danny and texting back to Mark. But as he, as he told us earlier in the podcast, these things, you know, take time. They develop over time. So I'm sure they'd had uh, a lot of conversations about Rondo, but uh, I think the feelings the organization had after that Golden State game just cranked it up. That was like a good game to assess. That's where the top of our conference is. This is where we are. We need to address our point guard situation. Yeah, we got to do something. We got to do something. It just wasn't working at the time. No. Was- and, uh, you know, different people have different feelings about Rondo and the Rondo trade on and on and on. But that was a good example of the Mavericks have always been very proactive and we're not going to sit around and wait. We're going we're gonna to do something aggressively to put us in the right position. And I just, you know – just sitting there and observing all that going on, I was like, we're going to have something done here quickly. There was just way too much. It wasn't, hey, how do you feel about this right now? It was, he was working to get something done. 24 hours later, it was done. Yeah. It is weird that like the pre-championship Warriors were kind of, after that game, it was, I mean, they had to do something. After yeah. That, game. But that was before the Warriors won a title. But that year, them stampeding through the league kind of led to, the revolution. All of this stuff that has happened since. Yeah. It's been a wild couple of years. Um, okay, real quick. Yes. So you kind of talked about how that, that Warriors game was like the impetus mm-hmm. for that move. Um, around the league, it seems like there's, you know, there's your Warriors, Rockets tier, and then there's the Celtics, I guess, and maybe the Raptors, and then it's like everybody else. Right. Like the Mavs are fourth or fifth from the bottom, I think, in the mm-hmm. record, but they're like four games out of like the – the, the New record. Orleans, yeah. Portland jumble. Yeah, whatever. it's yeah. insane. And all those teams that are in the playoffs are only two or three games away from being like bottom of the lottery. Right. So that kind of whenever we were talking to Donnie about like buyers and sellers, I don't think that there are any this year. Like it's yeah. all I, I don't think any team is feeling that that feeling that the Mavs felt in 2014 where they're like, man, we got to do something because like we're one guy away from being potentially really good or like we have to get rid of this guy because he's going to leave. Like I don't see any of that happening. I think you're mostly accurate. The two things I would throw out there that I think are different is I think Cleveland feels tremendous pressure um, because they have a very old team. They have the highest payroll besides Golden State. They obviously have giant holes and they're evaluating what do we do here. I think they feel immense pressure. Um, and they're clearly not as good as the three or four other teams that you mentioned because they have the best player. I, I, I don't know that I thought it was going to be to this degree, but I tried to tell everybody there's going to be a seismic shift with, when Cle- with Cleveland when Isaiah Thomas gets healthy. You don't just drop a ball-dominant player into the mix and sudden, you know, there's a feeling out period. Especially because they haven't played – literally have not put point guards on the floor all season. No. I mean, it's been like a bunch of 6'8 guys. Right. All of a sudden, well, now we have like a 5'9". And I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but Isaiah Thomas is regarded as one of the single worst defensive players in the NBA. Mm, awesome okay. offensive player, yes. but whenever you pair him with a guy that kind of right. takes it, yeah. And they're a bad defensive team already. So yeah. I'm not ruling them out or any of this sort of, but they're going to feel enormous pressure. The other one is I think Oklahoma City feels enormous pressure. Because uh, they have to figure out, are we going to be able to keep Paul George? Is Carmelo going to opt out and walk? You know, it helped them tremendously that they got Russell inked long term, but they're still looking at it like we've got we're, we're right there. If we can get these guys to to blend, is there a guy that we can add? Is there a three and D player? Yeah, I'm sure you've seen the numbers of how good they are with Roberson on the floor and what a disaster they are when he's off the floor defensively. It is amazing how much 
that one guy makes a difference. Right. But offensively, you absolutely don't even have to cover him. It's like you put me in the game, right? You just don't have to defend him at all. So Give yourself a little credit there. Uh, but I, I can't defend like him. So anyways, my whole point is that I think those two teams are sort of in this weird space, but I think aside from them, your assessment is right on. So I think teams are just going to kind of be what you talked about, how Mark and Donnie say they're opportunistic. Can I do a little thing to improve myself without hurting the future? Yeah, sure, I'm interested in that. The thing is, though, like, it feels like, I mean, maybe this is just me misremembering altogether, but it feels like in years past, the teams that are in Cleveland and OKC situation have, like, a young guy or, like, something, you know? And Cleveland has that Brooklyn pick, which is, like, becoming the most talked about thing in the league, but given the state of maybe what happens to their team this summer, I don't know if they're going to want to move that. So it's like, what, you know, the teams that are trying to buy maybe don't have the the, the ammo. They might not yeah. have the cash in their wallet, you know, to, to make that move. It's, Cleveland's it's the only team that has the ammo, but then they have to make the decision if it's worth it. I don't think people realize the Cavs are so far over the cap, and then they're going to have to decide how much to pay 30-year-old Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, can you explain real quick, uh, for people who might not know, like the – the financial penalties of being over the cap for as long as the Cavs have. So let's say yeah. this summer they want to sign uh, player X to like a $10 million contract. What does that actually cost them? Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't gone in and looked, but basically they're past the uh, last time I looked, they were 16 million, I believe over the luxury tax line. And I have to go back and look and see how many times they've been over the luxury tax line, but it's a lot, a, a lot. Right. And so there's what they call repeater taxes. And so that money multiplies. So if you just look at a payroll and they say, Oh, they have $137 million payroll. No, it's not. It's the number over the tax line. Then depending on how many years you've been over it, that increases. And so it might say 137, but they might actually be shelling out like $179 million in, in money of payroll once you factor in taxes, luxury tax and all this. Yeah, I think it's $3 for every $1, it's which is like... Outrageous. Yeah. It's like Bitcoin outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the whole point is that no owner wants to spend that unless they're getting a championship or they're losing in the finals. And so that's the other thing Cleveland has to look at on the floor and go, how far away are we? How much money are we willing to take on? That's why you sometimes see teams just, oh, I'll give you a first-round pick to take this $10 million player. They're just trying to get under the damn luxury tax line just mm-hmm. once because it changes their fortune dramatically. Yeah, and, I mean, that's an expensive an expensive mistake to make. Absolutely I mean, it is. Because one guy could cost you a bazillion dollars. But right. I think that their situation – I mean, we don't have to veer too far off course, but this is kind of interesting to me. Their situation, I think, would be different um, heading into the trade deadline if Isaiah was healthy at the, at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. Because then they'd be they'd have a big enough sample size to say, right. this is working or it isn't. Right. I think any time you try and integrate a healthy guy, like the Mavs might go through this with Seth Curry. Mm-hmm. Like if he comes back in February, like Rick Carlos said, he might. Okay, well, the first five, ten games you put him out there, it's gonna kind of everyone's gonna kind of be feeling themselves out a little bit, mm-hmm. and it's even more so with Isaiah because he's such a good scorer, and the stakes are so high and for the stakes them. Are, yeah, I mean they're they're working with like we can either go to the finals or this thing might not right. work out, and uh, so if they were going through this in November or December, the way the Mavs were with that uh, that pre Rondo trade team. Maybe things would be different, but yeah, I mean, right now it's like the the clock is ticking. They got three weeks to decide. Mm-hmm. Like, do we think that we got what it takes? And 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 when you factor in all the talk about, well, where's LeBron going to go? I mean, that's a, that's a real thing they have to contend with. I personally think he stays put. 
But, you know, as we've seen before, free agency can reveal some crazy subplots. Absolutely. Especially this summer, man, because yeah. now it's trades, too. It's not just guys signing. Right. It's like, I mean, last year, the Thunder got mellow and George by trading. Chris so, Paul. Yeah, to Chris the Paul. Trade. I think that is the craziest offseason in any sport in the history of professional sports in North America. It was. The NBA's offseason. Wild. It was wild. Yeah. Every year it's wild, though. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's just crazy. And, and, uh. I mean, yeah, the year before with KD, and that's how, like, Barnes coming to the Mavs, you can think about him what you want, but, like, that's a good player. He's a Hell tw- yes. He's a 20-point-per-game guy. Hell yes. So, him coming to the Mavs only happens if KD does not go to Golden State. Right. Because otherwise, Golden State's keeping him. Right. As they should, because right. that guy's really good. Right. So, like, it sometimes these, like, weird cosmic events happen 15 teams away from you, and it, like, you can you – can, pick up kind of the what's left over. I think that's kind of the opportunistic. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was sitting there thinking, you just defined what opportunistic means. So wait for wait for KD to sign with someone else this summer and the Mavs can pick up uh, what's left. Yep. But, yeah, that's kind of it's, – it's how it's got to be. you got to have the the pieces in place. And, I mean, the Mavs this, this year are working with a kind of a very extremely flexible salary cap situation because they have all these exceptions like trade exceptions and mid-level exceptions and stuff that they haven't used yet that they mm-hmm. can just like say, no, we don't want them anymore. Like they can sacrifice their right to use them and get way under the cap. Yeah. And like, that gives you like, more flexibility. Like $13, 12000000 million range. Yeah, which means you can take on that money for nothing. Right. Um, without having to give up because you have to trade match salary. So like Cleveland, for example, if they want to make a trade, they're so far over the cap they have to be within a certain percentage of the money they give out that they're bringing back in. Right. Mavericks don't have to do that. Mavs don't have to do that. They can go help teams and then get the benefit of helping a team. Yeah. Kind of like what they did with Josh McRoberts this offseason. And uh, Andrew Bogut as well. Now they wanted Bogut to play, but that was the same thing. Golden State needed to shed salary. Yeah. We'll take a a great defensive center. Sounds good. Hey, more of that, uh, more of that same thing the year before that Zaza Pachulia Mm -hmm. with the Bucks. Yep. He was great point. Okay. You know, we kind of don't, we don't really need him. We don't want him. We got Thon maker and all these guys so here you can have zaza and he had almost an all-star season that was awesome he was like ten thousand votes away dude he's one of my favorite like uh one and doneers here i loved zaza still do whenever he comes with the golden state he hugs everybody he's it's it's he's a really really fun guy he's such a good guy yeah him and uh al farouk aminu one of my all-time favorite maps yeah a a good guy quiet would barely say a sentence but once you talk to him man just a really good dude and had a weird uh side gig as a uh, glasses model i forgot about yeah yeah he had his own line didn't he yeah yeah, dude, that is that is good. They, they've had some characters in here. Uh, one more thing before we uh, before we sign off here. Uh, whenever we were in our big elaborate production meeting, uh, pre-production meeting for this podcast, again, one thing that you asked me is uh, maybe that we could talk about is some of your favorite non-Mavs mm-hmm. uh, in the NBA. And I was like thinking about it, and I'm trying to stay away from obvious guys. Like for example, everybody loves Giannis. Right. Everybody right. loves, you know, Carl Anthony Towns. Right. Even though, man, to me, it was never a debate between him and Okafor, but that's that's neither here nor there. Sure. Um, so I was trying to think of, like, non-obvious guys that I really like to watch, whose games I really respect and whose games I really like and all that. And one answer stuck out to me almost it, – it took me a while to think of it, but once I thought of it, I was like, man, that's the most obvious thing ever. Dude, Steven Adams – I love that guy. <laughs> yes. I love his game. I love his attitude. I yes. love his look. Everything about him. I love that guy's game. I like that big giant humans bounce off of him, and then he just sort of looks at him like a, like a gnat. You know, He's a monster. He's a monster. Yeah, Steven Adams is a blast. And I also, like you mentioned Giannis, 
Like one of the reasons I love Giannis aside from the way he plays is all the stuff off the court about what a great human he is and falling in love with smoothies and running down the street freezing cold because he just sent his last dollar back home to his family. And (laughs) there's just so many great stories. But if you go look, Stephen Adams had some really funny lines and perspectives and views on the world that just exacerbate the love for the player. What you see on the floor goes part and parcel with the cool stuff off the floor. Yeah, for sure. And the way he plays is like – I don't know if you if you really like basketball, then it's impossible to miss him out there because of all the stuff he does. But like, if you're just kind of a casual fan, which is fine, he's almost like invisible because all mm-hmm. he is doing is like setting screens and getting rebounds, just doing the boring stuff. But dude, he is so good. He's awesome. He's so good. He plays so, center on my team many times. Yeah, for sure. Do you have one guy like that? Uh, you know, one of the guys I thought of, and it's because I really wasn't a big fan of his in college, even though he was a great college player. But I, I sort of like, I was like, man, he's kind of, I see him as sort of like a, a Bobby Jackson type. I don't think he's going to be that great. He'll be okay. And he's been a phenomenal pro. Is Kemba Walker. Dude, he's so good. He's so baller. I had no idea he would be this freaking good. It kind of like, it kind of almost just, I guess it was steady climb, but like starting last year maybe he was mm-hmm. like dude this guy is like he went from like pretty good to like amazing he's got the ridiculous start and stop action we're talking about dennis not being able to stay in front of dennis man good luck staying in front of kemba especially that, now that he has a jumper yes guy he's good man he's yeah. really really good and i did not value him coming out of college the way i should have yeah and you know charlotte because uh, i think earlier in the in his career i don't really think he had any like major injury problems but he was just kind of like He's kind of building. He wasn't, mm-hmm. like, averaging 20 a game or anything, so they signed him to a pretty team-friendly deal, just like Steph. Yeah. And Steph is obviously unbelievable, but it didn't really click for him until he was, like, in his fourth or fifth year, kind of right. like Kemba, which yeah. makes you th- – and those guys were – I think Kemba was a multi-year college player, two or three years in college. Steph was three years, I mm-hmm. think. So, like, those guys even came in the NBA, like, a little older than players like Dennis and Lonzo Ball and those guys. And I think to your point, though, uh, Bobby, that whole idea of player development and guys physically getting better stuff, that's one of the reasons the Mavs decided to invest in Seth Curry. They thought he could be a late bloomer like his brother. He's been set back by injuries this year, but I think, you know, that kind of goes along the line of thinking you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. And guys like Finney Smith and Yogi Ferrell, guys who really should have been drafted regardless of their age, but who maybe their age being – four-year college guys was sort of a turnoff. Finney right. Smith really five years because he sat out yeah. a year. He was a 23-year-old rookie, which is unheard of these days, but those guys can both play. Uh, hopefully, Finney Smith will play soon. Yeah. Same with Seth. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, we'll be podcasting again soon, man. Let's do it next week, taking brother. A, taking a bye week last week was... It was a rough travel week, yeah. and everybody had the flu. Yeah. So, uh, But we're all back, we're all healthy, and we're going to be podcasting long and strong all throughout the season. Yeah, let's go. So thanks to Donnie for joining us again. Thank you for joining me as always. And to you, the listener, thank you for tuning in to Numbers on the Boards. We will catch you guys next week. Numbers on the Boards with Jeff Skinwade and Bobby Corella. It's Corella. 